completing our sermon series on questions. After requesting responses from all of you regarding your questions about God, faith, and the church, we have again come to that time when I attempt to faithfully respond to those questions. Over the last two weeks, we have looked at what it means to be saved and how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to one another. Today, we are talking about other faiths and how they relate to us. So, here we go. Let's pray. Jesus Christ. 
Hence the strong push for evangelism over the last two millennia. Because not only did Jesus command his disciples to go and baptize all people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but we have been steeped in our tradition that affirms that salvation can only come through Christ. In the first few centuries, the church agreed that outside of the church there is no salvation. In order to experience the forgiving pardon of God, you have to be taught the ways of the church, engage in acts of kindness and mercy, and be baptized in order to find your true identity in the body of Christ. Even with the rise of other religions and the interaction between them and Christianity, we affirm that the only way to God is through His Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. I remember feeling so uncomfortable in class that day because of what my fellow student had said to Dr. Vitale. In the moment, I couldn't believe that she had the gall to ask a question, that maybe she just wanted to frustrate or elicit some sort of reaction from him. But maybe, maybe she was just being genuine, concerned about his salvation, and wanted to know why he would continue on a path that would separate him from God. Because after all, no one can come to the Father Except through Jesus Christ. Amen. Here ended sermon number one. <laughs> First Timothy two, one through four. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may be, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved. Karl Barth, my theological hero, the one that I often quote from the pulpit, was often very vague regarding his understanding of the totality of salvation. In his lectures and publications, there are examples where he almost affirms a universalist understanding of God's redemptive work. That's to say that he dances around the claim that all have been and will be saved through Christ's death and resurrection. So it happened once, after a series of lectures, a young theologian bravely raised his hand to ask a question. Professor Barth, I would like to know once and for all, are you a universalist? Do you really believe that everyone will go to heaven? So I imagine Barth crossed his arms, thought about it deeply, maybe touched his temple, thought about the implications of his response before he made it. And so he answered. That is a great question. Let me put it this way. I will not be disappointed if heaven is crowded. <laughs> the question of universalism is remarkably relevant, considering the great range of thoughts regarding faith and discipleship today. Our world is becoming more and more diverse with differing understandings of Christianity spreading and springing up all over the world. Was Christ's sacrifice on the cross only for those who believe in him, or was it for all creation? 
might think of the often quoted John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or the number of instances in Scripture where individuals outside the realm of Israel, such as Rahab from Jericho, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, and the unnamed centurion who declared the truth, this man was God's Son when Christ died on the cross. These people outside of the realm of Israel who played remarkable roles in the story of God's interaction with God's people. We might think of the fact that humankind was created in the image of God. Every single person, every individual has been molded from God's image and given life through the Spirit regardless of their religious affiliation. We might think of examples from Christ's ministry where he did not come for the religious elite, but for the last the least, and the lost. Jesus shared meals with the sinners, the vagrants, and the outcasts. Jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. So, if we believe that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, neither death nor life nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, then God's mercy truly knows no bounds. God's love, therefore, is so magnificent and unconditional that it extends not only to all of us gathered here, but to all people of all times, everywhere. God's love has been poured out through Christ's death and resurrection onto the church and to everyone outside the church as well. Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists, agnostics, and everyone in between have been caught up in God's great cosmic victory over death. So in Bart's response to the young theologian, he deliberately avoided answering the question. Yet he embodied the kind of hope that all Christians should have. The kind of hope that God's love is so powerful that he came to die for us while we were yet sinners. The kind of hope that God's mercy is so strong that nothing will ever separate us from God. The kind of hope that God's grace is so abundant that heaven will be crowded. After all, this is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved. Amen. Here ended the second sermon. John 13, 34. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. Last year, my final year of seminary in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University, I served as an on-call chaplain at Duke University Hospital. Once a month, I had to arrive at the church for the hospital property, and I wasn't allowed to leave for 24 hours. I would have to walk through all the halls with my white lab coat, responding to every page for every patient that needed someone to talk to, that needed a shoulder to cry on, and I had to be present for every single death that occurred in the hospital. It was, without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And one night, after sitting with numerous families who had just learned that someone had died, after talking with patients just diagnosed with inoperable cancer, 
and after pacing up and down the sterile hallways for hours, I found myself in the chapel. Now, the chapel at Duke University Hospital is no bigger than our narthex, and it's sparse. There's an altar, a piano, some religious books from all different kinds of world religions, and that's it. But I found that place to be solace for me. I would often retreat from all of the death and the fear and the suffering of the hospital to the chapel, because it's that one place that I could be with God and not carry the burdens of the people I was serving. Every once in a while, I would encounter a Muslim praying on his knees in the corner of the chapel. We would always politely nod to one another, go our separate ways, do what we needed to do, but that night, that one particular night, the night that it felt like it would never end, everything changed. I was standing at the altar with a book in front of me, a notebook that everyone could write down their prayers, and I was reading them out loud, praying them out loud to God. When all of a sudden, the Muslim man stopped praying in the corner. He stood up, walked over to me, and stood by my side, facing the altar. Let us pray together. So without talking about the specifics, without going into the theological implications of a Christian and a Muslim praying together, without overthinking what we did, we both began to pray. I don't remember anything we said. I don't know how long we were there, but I know it was profound. And when our prayers naturally came to their conclusion, we met eye to eye, we nodded, and we went back to serving the people of the hospital. In compiling all of the questions for this sermon series, as I said before, what happens to people of other faiths occurs more than any other question. And without a doubt, the existence of and interactions with other religions is perhaps the most troubling and perplexing problem maybe opportunity for Christians today. Moreover, with the rise of atheism, it further complicates the picture into a very mosaic, whereby the church is challenged to address those who do not believe at all, and those who do believe, but believe differently than us. So, what happens to people of other faiths? I don't know. We can take Jesus' words from John or other affirmations from Scripture and receive very different answers. One of the struggles with being a Christian is that we have to paradoxically affirm both responses, that salvation can only come through the church, and that through Christ, all people have been saved. What happens to people of other faiths is a perplexing and an interesting question. But in the end, God is the only one who holds the answer. However, I believe that a question that strikes our hearts today is, how do we relate to people of other faiths? Jesus commands us all to love one another. This is the new commandment. If there is any command from Jesus to obey in our lives regarding other faiths, it is this. Love one another. In my own life, God has used a number of people from outside the church to help teach me about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Questions from my secular friends about why I believe. The love expressed by indigenous Mayan women in the highlands of Guatemala. And 
one of the Muslim doctors at Duke Hospital who met me in the depth of suffering to pray together. What has been revealed for us through Christ's life, death, and resurrection is that God desires us to be in relationship with others. This means that we have to be willing to be vulnerable with people who are different from us, people whose beliefs contradict our own, and people with no beliefs at all. We are called to love one another just as God has loved us. And we are not here to just minister to other Christians, but to the whole world. We are called to seek justice and mercy in the world for all who are oppressed, regardless of age, race, sexual orientation, gender, economic status, and religious affiliation. So, in the great adaptive words of John Wesley, Though we may not think alike, though our differences of opinion and religious understanding may vary considerably, though we may not agree on the scope of salvation, and though we may not have the same opinion about the role that Jesus plays in the cosmic victory over death, may we not love alike. Without all doubt, we may. This I offer to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God.